and what I've experienced, it is very easy for a white Christian to be like, oh, I, I recognize my privilege. Like, okay, but then, and, <laughs> what, and, I'm so glad, I'm so glad, and. Welcome to All God's Children. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go and talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Thank you for joining the Raceless Gospel Podcast, where word meets flesh, and where we gather to talk about the sticks and stones that break the skin and bones of the body of Christ and the structure of a church service. I am your host and podcast pastor, Starlet Thomas. Season three of the Raceless Gospel Podcast is brought to you in part by the CBF Podcast. Since 2016, the CBF Podcast has delivered over 300 episodes of interviews with thinkers, authors, theologians, creatives, and practitioners for conversations that matter. These critical and innovative conversations have garnered weekly support from around the world. The CBF Podcast tries to cultivate healthy and diverse theological dialogue in a culture fraught with division. Stream and subscribe to the CBF Podcast on Apple, Google, Amazon, SoundCloud, and all other major podcast platforms. Learn more at cbf.net slash podcasts. On today's podcast, I am joined by Alyssa Aldape, writer and columnist at Good Faith Media. We will discuss the body language of the North American church, which gives certain members the cold shoulder. But first, won't you pray for us? And do pray with me. God who rubs shoulders with us, who travels in the same circles, who mingles with the marginalized and decenters the powerful through prophets, priests, sweet baby Jesus, and everyday people, we bow our heads with hearts grieved for those who have been given the cold shoulder by the North American church. We acknowledge those who have been snubbed, slighted, spurned, shunned, and steered clear of. We confess that we freeze them out for one pseudo-biblical, financial, hyper-political, racial, traditional reason or another. We reject them faithfully and as an expression of faith, as a practice of discipleship, as a tool of evangelism, as a demonstration of supremacy, as a means of control, as a display of power, as something to be proud of. We confess that we have been wrong and way too loud. Teach us how to tone it down, to dial it back and to have their backs now. Forgive us for our chilly responses and hold us accountable for blame shifting, for our spiritual bypassing, for telling them to be stronger and to not be so sensitive, to get used to it, to get used to being knocked down, to dust themselves off and try to be welcomed again by the church while shouldering a burden that shouldn't have been placed on them in the first place when they are already carrying a world of hurt. Amen. Thomas G. Long taught me in testimony, talking ourselves into being Christian. When we talk about faith, we are not merely expressing our beliefs. 
We are coming more fully and clearly to believe. In short, we are always talking ourselves into being Christian. I believe he's right that our public testimony, our Sunday morning service group chat, was and is now part sharing and part sorting things out. What we believe about God and consequently about ourselves. Too often, our relational proximity to God makes some American Christians feel like they are better than everyone else. Oddly enough, the self-inflation starts with other Christians and works its way out into the world to be applied to everyone else. We test and cross each other out first. We sing, in Christ there is no east or west, but there is a color line and cultural boundaries and people we cross off our list because they don't look, talk, or act like us. It is cultural assimilation plus Christ's salvation. We have made a combo when it started as a single sacrifice, and I cannot understand for the life of me how we swapped out our body for the body of Christ, who never gave anyone the cold shoulder. Our scripture reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 13 and 14. The New Revised Standard Version translates Paul's words this way. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is Reverend Starlet Thomas, your podcast pastor, and we'll be right back. I'm Wanda Hardy Kidd. I'm a retired campus minister in my late 60s, living in North Carolina. A couple of years ago, burdened by grief, I left home, alone, a road trip, just me, my truck camper, and a broken spirit. But I found healing in my desert wanderings. This June, join me for the journey again. 30 episodes, a short one each day. Journey through the desert from me, Wanda Hardy Kid, and Good Faith Media. This is Reverend Starlet Thomas, welcoming you back to this episode of the Raceless Gospel Podcast. I want to introduce to some and present again to others, Alyssa Aldape, who has also served as an associate pastor. For today's sermon, we will engage in the tradition of call and response, a sacred back and forth. Feel free to join in as official members of the Amen Corner. Pray for us as we discuss the North American Church's body language. Let the church say amen and amen again. Uh, so this this third season of the podcast, we're looking at the church's body language because the church is saying one thing. Um, 
the body is saying another. So this episode is about the ways in which the North American church gives certain folks the cold shoulder. Uh, so they say things like, we accept you. We accept you not. We accept you. We accept you not. Uh, the North American church has a history of excluding marginalized people groups. Historically given the cold shoulder, what does this body language suggest about the God who so loved the world and sent Jesus to prove it? So I love that you framed it in this way because I think what it boils down to is how you interpret that passage um, and more so how you interpret Jesus' uh -huh. execution by the state. Um, for so many of us in the North American church, we were taught that Jesus was sent to die. Jesus was sent to be killed. So what then is the importance of an earthly body if the chosen and saved will end up in heaven? And I think that this mentality um, happens or cheapens the value of our bodies. And what's more wrapped in white supremacy, it justifies harm and brutality done to non-white, not male, non-binary bodies. Um, and so I think for me, you know, again, growing up in this understanding of, you know, the God sent God's son to solely die and be a sacrifice. I think what it, what it has done, it has cheapened the full body experience of being called beloved creation by God. Which is ironic, I think, because I'm, I, I don't think I'm going to butcher this. I, I got to be plus in church history, so I'm not. But um, when was it? It was during uh, when they were early church councils and they're trying to um, or they essentially proclaim that Gnosticism is a heresy. And right. Gnosticism was all about like the spirit world good or the spirit good, the body bad. And they're like, no, but we're one. We're one because God created us this way. And yet here we are hundreds of years later maybe a thousand years later, I can't remember when that council was, um, still kind of in that Gnostic body, bad spirit, good. And so for me as a person, I mean, it's one thing to be taught that and only know this, at, you know, as a child and then young adult growing up in the church, but then it's another when you learn it in seminary and we're told that was a heresy when in fact we are, we continue to objectify the body and only say that the spirit is good. You were talking about that, and I was thinking about uh, in my uh, Pentecostal holy, holiness church tradition, we were taught that our sins put him there. Uh, and that if we did something wrong, we were crucifying Jesus afresh. Oh my God. And so I just thought, <laughs> just, you just unearthed a bit, yeah. a bit of uh, trauma. <laughs> around body Listen, is the trauma I'm still, I'm still processing that processing for myself there is um so you know the the church the youth group of the 90s loved a skit right we loved putting on a skit and one of the skits i remember that the older kids did at church camp one year um was the skit where a guy goes to see to you know goes to his his friend's house to visit him because they hadn't seen him in church in a while and in like throughout the skit you see this friend just kind of like slowly folding up that he's put other things a priority before church because heaven forbid you know you have you do things outside of sunday other than church and at the end like it gets really dramatic and there's this build up and it's like each time the friend goes, but what's wrong with you? you you're, you've changed. You've put other things in priority. And like every time the guy said, no, well, uh, I, I'd rather like, I'd rather hang out with my friends. And you see his Christian friend, like 
hold, grab his wrist and go, ah, because like wherever God or Jesus was crucified, he would hold on and go, you're crucifying Jesus every time you put other things as a priority. I see, again, seeing that as a child and thinking, am I doing this to Jesus every time? I prioritize myself. I mean, my bigger, my bigger takeaway from that skit was, oh, so like rest, I thought rest was something God wanted us to do, but no, not on Sunday. We have to be at church from the minute that door opens to the time that door closes. Yes. And when we don't, we are crucifying yeah. Christ. I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, skits, I'm skits like that are why I, I have no social life and no social skills. It's why I know what to do in church, but I don't know what to do in a, in a room uh, full of people. Uh, why I, saw, I struggle oh, with anxiety. It's like, oh my gosh, we have to talk uh, because they told us we couldn't do anything else. Other than witness to people. And I, I can lead you to Jesus, Christ. but please don't ask me questions about, you know, politics, what's going on in your life. I can spit scripture verbatim, but if you want to small talk, now I can talk eternity, but small talk, you're pushing it. You're pushing it. Uh, uh, so how would, speaking of pushing it, how would you, how would you describe this theology of exclusion? Uh, and what is, in your estimation, what is the, the justification for the chilled response? Mm. I'm thinking of all the people that we excluded in church as I asked that question. Yeah. Oh, please. So I think it has to do with power. I mean, first of all, number one, it is transactional, not transformative. Um, the North American church has made a deal with white supremacy for power. And the toll is that it has harmed anyone that does not fit into a mold. And a mold being what we described earlier, a mold of white supremacy. Whether that is ableism, fat phobia, queer identity, queer gender, I mean, it is not anything that does not fit this ideal standard. Call the roll. Um, you, you're just, you just don't belong. And I think, it, 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 again, it's this idea, right? It's kind of all tied into this understanding of what it means to be the perfect, to be, like, to be the perfect example of a Christ-following Christian, or like a Christ-follower in the North American church, it is to be able-bodied, white and male, female, but only as an, you know, only as the, as the side, as the assistant to the male. And if you, if you don't fit this very hard mold, then what good are you? But again, it goes against this understanding of a God who has created every single thing and has called it good. Um, and yet, I mean, again, it has made this deal with an under, like a capitalist understanding of, you know, what does it mean to be a, a co-laborer? So like, there's all of this language around labor and what you bring when we have spoken again and again and again about a God who is just all like grace and love and acceptance is just, is just like the bare minimum period. Like that's where we start. And yet the church continues to try to bring in or not try to, it has um, the message of well, what labor do you bring that makes you good, that counts you as good? No, you're absolutely right. And I think the ways in which we have um, constructed Christ and painted in the face of the divine, um, for me, shows me uh, how, where, where you see God and who you'll see God in. Um, 
And that's always striking for me. Every time I go into a church, I always go and look for the pictures of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I take pictures of them. I collect these, these Jesuses. It, it's always, um, <laughs> I do. I have a bunch of them. I collect them. There's one out, there's several out on newsstands now um, on the historical Jesus. And I bought every single copy. Uh, we talked about exclusion, uh, which ha- it warns that certain people be put on the margins and you're talking about whiteness. I, I just wonder, um, how we justify centering that and suggesting that whiteness, this, the social coloring of skin that is white is the apple of God's eye, that this is the way in which all people are to be created, they are, that they are to live and move and have their being through this, that this is normalized. I, 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 I struggle with that, with the narcissistic state faith confession that it is, that if you don't look like me, if you don't sound like me, that if you're not made in my image, mm-hmm then you're not worthy. Mm-hmm. So I just, I'm very interested in the ways in which whiteness has traded places with Christianity and with divinity. Uh, and I think the church needs to wrestle with that. Oh yeah. And I think it, I, you are, you're absolutely right. And I don't think it is, it has been done in a way that truly gets to the root of the issue. I think it is easy for, it is very easy. And what I've experienced, it is very easy for a white Christian to be like, oh, I, I recognize my privilege. Like, okay, but then, and, <laughs> well, and, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And, what are they? Give, are they giving you the bare minimum in terms of confession for as a practice of discipleship? And and the, so here's the, again the thing is, you know, it's like this understanding of when people think they're being edgy and calling God she. Like, oh, okay. And like, all right, well then what, so then what, what, what implication does that have then? And so how does that play out into your theology? And I think for me, you know, I, I don't, I know personally where the root of understand, like where the root of equating whiteness with Christian or good Christian or good Jesus follower. I mean, it began in church. It began in the Hispanic church, the Hispanic Baptist church. We were all different shades of black and brown, and yet our Jesus in our Sunday school lessons and our stained glass on the, you know, where that, wherever the baptismal is back on the stage when that big mural painting, I mean, Jesus was white. And so you can say as many words as you want, like, oh, yes, you were loved. God called you good. You know, you, you've been saved. You've been baptized here. But when you were baptized under the shadow of a white Jesus, again, the the actions don't match up with the words. And so, you know, it it start for me, I know it began in church and it began socially in church. You know, we, you talk about how, like, yeah, I don't know how to do small talk, but I know how to give you the Roman road. I actually don't. I failed that class in discipleship once. You don't know the ABCs of salvation. I know the ABC scripture song. You don't know Romans 323, 623 and Romans 10, 9 and 10. All I remember is for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you will believe now, confess with your mouth and believe mm. in your heart. You see that? I feel sick. I just got saved again. Thank you. Now you see that? Now that's sad. Now if you ask, but if you ask me to lead a, a conversation just with my peers, <laughs> I have nothing to say. Uh, I want to point out that you're not just spouting off. It's not just your experience, but it's been documented. 
the, the, the connections between the, the church um, and its complicity with and its creation of racial categories. Mm-hmm. Read books like Christian Slavery, like Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise, and Another That Fails Me. You can also do research. Or just read my dissertation on on baptism and race, and and you'll make the connections there. Uh, (laughs) Shameless plug. Next question, Jewish. Did you see that? Shameless. It's called the Raceless Gospel, people. The Raceless (laughs) Gospel. It's the name of the podcast. It's the name of the initiative. And it's it's, it's in the dissertation title, friends. Just Google it. Google it. It'll bless your life. Now, see how I can do that? But don't don't ask me about my favorite color. <laughs> if I like to take long walks in the park, do none of that. Instead, answer answer these questions, Jewish poet. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) I can do this well. Jewish poet Emma Lazarus's famous sonnet, The New Colossus, is engraved on the Statue of Liberty and includes the invitation, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. What biblical reference could be offered as the North American church's invitation to an inclusive community? Mm. So, you know, any chance I have to offer the story of the Canaanite woman in the book of Matthew, I'm going to use it. Um, And so for me, the story of the Canaanite woman in the book of Matthew reminds me of the, like what the actual, like message and ethos of the gospel is. It is good news for all people. And it is a reminder that even Jesus himself, God God, the the very creator of the universe had to have their mind changed and are reminded that when God said all was created and called good, God also meant outsiders, outsiders who society deemed outsiders were good. And, you know, I, I know there are some people who don't like that story that thinks it cheap, it cheapens the, you know, the, the witness of Jesus. But for me, what it does, it reminds me that if, if, if Jesus can change his mind, if Jesus can be called out in front of a crowd of his peers, of male peers, by a woman, then, Preach. I, then I think I can change my mind too. I think disruption, like dis- disruption should and ought to be welcomed in our, in our faith, in our faith journey. See what I did there? In our faith journey. Y'all see that? Y'all, what y'all can't see on the podcast is how I lean down in my chair because she's preaching, friends. Just turn to your neighbor and say she's preaching. She said, she said Jesus was called out by a woman in front of men. It's in the book. And to and to know that this that this Jesus did not choose violence, did not choose oh, to degrade oh, her even more. Instead, oh, this woman is the power that she had in one small moment to say, but Jesus, even dogs deserve scraps. So at the very, at the bare minimum, your amount, the scraps of mercy and grace that you have for me is more than enough. And like, again, you know, how did there are stories in the, in the, in the gospels that we, that for me are a, are a telling sign of a gospel and a faith that embodies not just mercy and grace, but fully welcomes every person in who they are. 
how they are, how they come to Jesus, how we each come to Jesus in the way, in the bodies that we, that we live in and take up and take up space in. And that story is not, I mean, it, again, it is about Jesus changing his mind. The, I mean, some other themes for me are like how, you know, how, how we call out systems and not just the big mm-hmm. systems. We can all say, oh, the system's broken or like, no, it's not broken. It's working exactly. It's, yes, we all know that. But what are you going to do? It is one thing. Because we're beyond that. You're, you're absolutely is, right. Now that we've named it. It is how do we every single day call it out, whether it is a person calling a woman a dog and saying, hey, that was inappropriate right then and there. Because what we notice in this story is that none of Jesus's friends, no one says, why did you do that? Oh my God. Like, Hey, like we get it. She's a Canaanite and she's like an outsider, but like, come on. And what that tells me is that, that, that like behavior and that language and that treatment was just so normalized that even a teacher could just get away with it. And it's not surprising to me because so many teachers, so many pastors that we know today (laughs) still get away with that type of behavior. And so call it out. And so what the story tells me is that it's not just to, oh, Jesus was so brave. Oh, that Canaanite woman. Like, no, no, no. The people that we often are in, like those who identify as as Christians, the people that we are often in that story are the people who did not call Jesus out. Ooh. Were you there when he disrespected mm. the Canaanite woman? Yeah. And I think we can all answer with, yes, we, we were there at some point. Like, it's one thing to like, yes, I have identified as the Canaanite woman speaking my truth and talking and clapping back. And yet more often than not, I have been the person who has just followed the status quo and I just put my head down and just looked away. Because nobody else spoke up for. Because nobody else spoke up for. She had to do that herself. And it just, that for me, that is, that is the story. That is, that is an invitation for the church to reimagine what inclusivity means. That it's an ongoing conversation. It is an ongoing conversation. That anybody can push back. I wasn't expecting that. I mean, (laughs) I knew it was going to be good. And here's the thing, what, what I, again, what I love about this story is that every time I think I come out of this story or like just contemplating and reading it and, you know, praying on it, I never, it's not that I don't want to come out the hero. I just come out going, ah, damn it. Here's another thing I have to learn. Mm, mm. That's right. Because for any identity that I have, that is an identity of privilege, there is always going to be a lesson to learn about someone who is vulnerable. Because we're never close enough to Jesus. Exactly. Never. There's always room. May we may we live in a way that we catch up quicker, uh, quicker, and stop falling behind so intentionally. So what? Oh, come on, what you want to well, say? And at the very least, just understand and be be okay with the fact that every time we think we've gotten there, that there's still more to learn. Yeah. Yeah, because if anybody could have said they had arrived, it's, it's the, <laughs> it was Jesus. <laughs> it is Jesus, and it is those who consider themselves Jesus's friends, right? Like, yeah. oh, well, actually, I'm like learning from the most progressive teacher actually he is the way 
I know him personally. Like I call him Joshua, actually. <laughs> Dude, don't call him out. Yeah, it took a woman. It took a woman. I like to think that she was somebody who grew up being told, you keep talking like that and you're gonna get mm. in trouble. Speak before you, or think before you speak. And I say that again, because I've identified that way many times in my life, but for her, or, or maybe she was the quiet and meek one who had never, who's always been pushed over and who's always been walked on. And yeah. in this moment, she's like, but, 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 but I thought this is, I thought this man was chased out of his temple for saying that this was the year of the Lord's favor where every person who has ever been on the margins will be called loved and included. I thought that was this man. Is this not? Mm. Any way you read it, it's still a person proclaiming their power. Any way you preach it, it's a read. <laughs> My Lord, you ain't going to have them calling the church office for me on Sunday. That's not what we're not going to do. They're not even going to wait till the service is over. Don't ring my phone. Don't send me any emails. That's her preaching. All I did was say amen. She, I'm just pitching questions. Okay, this is how the spirit is leading. All right, don't, don't meet me in the parking lot after this podcast because there will be no fellowship after this. I'm not even coming over to IG or Twitter or Facebook. Don't even, don't even look for me there. I know I say that and I will say that at the end of this podcast, but I'm feeling a little tension. I'm feeling like some feelings might be hurt and I don't want to hear it. Mm. So we're going to go to brunch after this. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go to brunch and we're going to let you all meditate on this. And then you can talk about why and which it's hitting you. Uh, my folks would say a hit dog will, <laughs> a hit dog will holler. You know, I think for me, what, what I have had to learn as, as a Latina who has had to temper her reactions to every damn thing that I have ever done. I've had, you know, I have to ask myself, why is, am I having such a strong reaction to this? And it helps me just kind of think through it. And I really mm -hmm. hope that that is something that my white siblings can, can do for themselves. Like, why am I having such a visceral reaction to this? Um, mm. And I think Parker J. Palmer says, turn to wonder mm. rather than respond or react, turn to wonder. Why, why? With the same question, with the same leading you're offering, why is this triggering me? Why is this um, or am I sticking out? Why is this jarring? Why is this why is this prompting me to respond in this way? Mm -hmm. um, turn to wonder rather than and interrogate yourself. Um, turn yeah, be let the interrogation be turned inward. Yeah. Um, or at the very least, write it on a note, write it in your notes app, and then bring it to your therapist and go, let's talk about this. And why did it make me so angry? <laughs> well said. Well said. <laughs> So, so the next question is this. Oh, 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 you, um, you do know, dear listeners, she mentioned white, that you're white. You know, you're socially colored white, right? You know, I got to give y'all, get y'all together. You're socially colored white. You're not physically white. Okay. And that's part of our deconstruction journey. And so we're going to treat part of this podcast as a Sunday school. And so the lesson for today is that you are socially colored white. You are not physically white. Um, Henry Louis Gates says, Jr. says there's no, he's never met anyone that is physically colored, uh, black, brown, red, or yellow. And so we need to begin to ask ourselves again and again, why we identify with colors when it is clear that we come from countries and continents. Uh, that's your Bible study. That's your Sunday school lesson for the week. La the next question. Just wanted to be clear, be clear on that. 
let's be clear. Uh, what, the, <laughs> what, is, what is the body language of hospitality, of an authentic and warm welcome? Do we even know what that feels like, looks like? You know, I, I don't know if I've ever shown up in a space and been my full self. I've always had to prepare myself to hide just a bit mm. to wear the, you know, like, uh, like, uh, we wear the mask yeah. that grins and lies most often because I just, I, 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 I struggle with being vulnerable. Well, so I don't know. You know, and I, <clears throat> I think I'm, I'm currently kind of processing this for myself in the last year. Um, you know, Scar Starlet knows that I've, um, in the last year, I've left church ministry um, and have been processing what does it mean to be, what does it mean to be Elisa outside of the identity of pastor? And I don't mean that in a negative way. I think in a way for me, the way I have seen this vocation play out for so many is that it becomes your entire identity Yeah. in a way that just you lose yourself, you lose your authentic true self, because whether we like it or not we have this understanding of what a pastor looks like, preaches like, talks like, dresses like. Hmm. And <clears throat> I started to see myself cover myself up in so many different ways that just hmm. shamed who my true self was. And so for me in the last year, when I've asked myself, what does it mean to walk into a space and to be my full authentic self? I mean, we're talking about embodied, I mean, embodied you know, the body language right now. And I, you know, for, I think for any person who ident who has identified as a woman in church space, I mean, it, if you were ever told that your body, the way it is presented was a distraction, was sinful, was harmful, not just to others, but to yourself, there is just so much to work through. And so to go into a space in the fat brown female body that I have, and to feel fully well, uh, beautiful. Yes, beautiful, beautiful body. Yeah. To add okay. an additional. So let me let me also just state. I think people hear the word fat and think it's an ugly word. Oh, I don't. Because yeah. you know, no, in our I, culture, we love it. Oh yeah. No, I just I don't. I just think that it is. There is so much fat phobia still within the church that they're they are not ready to unpack and. That's true. And That's true. and to unpack into name and to hold and process. And so, you know, I, I say that to say, I want listeners to hear that word and not go, oh no, no, but you are beautiful. Like I know I am, I know I am beautiful and I am fat. And to, to tie that word to value again is another way that the church has not been hospitable. What if Jesus was overweight? That's all I kept thinking. Cause we always see is this surfer Jesus. <laughs> This buff Jesus. What if Jesus had a gut? You know, I don't he know did. If, we, if we're ready for those things. You know, all that you wine know he's Jesus drinking. Jesus, he had all of those disciples who were also this winning. chiseled chin. <laughs> to your point about body language, we don't know what that man looked like and what his struggle was. He might have had two chins. You don't know. And yeah, and I, so I think for me, when I go into a space trying to, trying to uh, like unveil for myself, these covers that I've hidden my full self in, I, you know, I realized how much church was, a, how much church yeah. influenced that. 
And so for me right now, it is, what does it feel? What does it, what does it look like to fully be out as, as myself in spaces and, and be okay with that without worrying about, oh, well, she doesn't look that she doesn't look like the role that we need her to. Um, and I, and so, so that for me, that's kind of the bigger understanding or question or answer to the question. Um, and kind of, I guess, more micro, you know. That's a fair response though. Through, thank you. But I, I think- you see it through the lens in which you feel most welcome. And I definitely identify with that. The ways in which I show up in church is definitely a facade. Yeah. I do not feel like my full self is welcome. Not my intellectual self, not my female self, um, not even my attractive self. Sometimes it, people tell me you're pretty, you, you should not preach. Why, why preach? You're, you're attractive. Um, oh, you're pretty and you can preach. Yeah. Oh, you're pretty, you can preach and you're smart. Like it's intelligent. Like you're really insulting me. Heaven forbid. Every of bit of the things. way. Yeah. You're all of them. You yeah. know what? And no one's going to want you. That makes you a tra- unattractive triple threat. Um. <laughs> or, and I look again, like, I mean, going back to like this, again, the damage that the church has done with bodies, um, you know, purity culture. I don't know if this was a thing for you growing up. Um, it was, but the way, and again, the way bodies were fetishized, whether they were non-white, socially non-white or even fat bodies were like cover up, but also you're fetishized, fetishized, but also you're not wanted. Yeah. But also you are free you are you are up for the for the taking from from any person in church but who's going to believe you that you were that you were harmed because yeah. you're not the body that is the yeah. ideal for the christian husband and so there i mean and, and and that's not just for that is for any person in a body who was told that this is what your body had to look like but you also couldn't think about it too much but you also have to focus on it because you need to be wanted but you also cannot be vain about it all predatory behavior and gaslighting. Oh, 100%. I think, I mean, again, it was a way for powers that be to justify you just completely exiting your body as a way to harm it. Mm. And so like going, boiling it down to, okay, what, I mean, if we're talking about church, what does a welcoming space look like? I mean, again, as a person who is able-bodied, you know, who, who is able to, to, to walk and to sit in a pew and to walk up the stairs to a stage or to a nave or a chancel, you know, I, I, I feel, I mean, I, what I, what I confess to you now is that I did not realize how limiting church spaces are to disabled bodies. And it is embarrassing to say that it wasn't until the you know, the COVID pandemic that it made me realize just how little we cared, we care about disabled bodies in the church, whether it is who can proclaim scripture, both physically to get up to proclaim it or to actually proclaim it from a microphone or not. We, we are, we are an institution that again, says one thing and does and practices a complete other and, absolutely, absolutely. And I think for me, absolutely. when we talk about what does it mean to be in a fully, fully welcoming, hospitable space, I mean, I don't think it's a space that's going to be perfect in any in any particular way. But until we can get to that perfect kingdom space, I mean, what it is is we are trying really hard to to know how to welcome in our neighbor. 
or our sibling. Mm. Mm. All right, last question, last question. Poets, poets and preachers alike are speaking of a world to come, evidenced by people like Alexis Pauline Gums and her book, Undrowned, Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Animals and Willie James Jennings and his book, it's a brilliant book. She's an incredible author. Uh, and his book, uh, After Whiteness and Education in Belonging. There is an undivided kingdom that is coming. Consequently, what are the ideas and perhaps truths that the North American church needs to warm up to? One, we have to reimagine language we've used in church. Um, I think the language is very, you know, we're, we're coming from this colonial lens, right? Where there is a kingdom, there is a king. And then, you know, yes, we're all called beloved sons and daughters, but even that, right? Like sons and daughters, like what, what about the children of God who identify as neither? And so <clears throat> we, we have to reimagine the language that we use um, because we know that our words carry power. And so what, did, what would it mean for us? You know, it's, it's, been, it's been some years, it's been 2000 years. So what does it mean to reimagine the language that we use around God, around the church, around the understanding of what, what, what it is to be, you know, kingdom come or a kingdom come, you know, we, I think for any, for any group of people that have historically come out of imperial rule, what, did, what, what are we saying when we say you were part of a kingdom? Well, they have been, and they didn't think it was great. <laughs> You know, and, and that, that's just kind of a big example, but you know, smaller ones, like when we, yeah, we call, you know, okay, calling God a she, that's, that, that's groundbreaking. And also what if we, what if God was neither? Exactly. And, um, and so for me, it is language. One of, that's one of the ways. The second is reimagining how we talk about bodies in church. I, there is, I, that's I, it right there. I, I say, I say it as a person who's experienced it, who is currently going through therapy because of it. The way we talk about bodies in the church of Jesus Christ has done so much harm to entire generations of people. And we have no idea the harm that it is like it has caused the generations now. And so I think for us, to have a good theology of body positivity or just good theology of embodying the gospel. Um, it is something that is very important if we want this movement to survive. So well said. Thank you for the word and for the witness and for the work that we have to do. Uh, the beautiful work, the courageous work, um, the necessary work um, that is ahead for all of us. Thank you so much. I want to thank our guest, Alyssa Aldape, and extend to you, our listeners, an opportunity to know this Jesus, who rubs shoulders with people that the religious elite wouldn't be caught dead or alive with. The Raceless Gospel Podcast Season 3 is brought to you by Good Faith Media. You can support our work and witness by making a tax-deductible contribution to Good Faith Media at goodfaithmedia.org.
This concludes this episode of the podcast, but not the conversation. Let's keep watching our body language. Head over to our fellowship hour at Raceless Gospel Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and Raceless Gospel Pod on Twitter. Absent in the body, but present in the Wi-Fi spirit. I'll see you there. On next week's episode of the Raceless Gospel Podcast, we'll hear from D. Danielle Thomas and talk about who the North American church keeps at arm's length. Season three of the Raceless Gospel Podcast is brought to you in part by the CBF Podcast. Since 2016, the CBF Podcast has delivered over 300 episodes of interviews with thinkers, authors, theologians, creatives, and practitioners for conversations that matter. These critical and innovative conversations have garnered weekly support from around the world. The CBF Podcast tries to cultivate healthy and diverse theological dialogue in a culture fraught with division. Stream and subscribe to the CBF Podcast on Apple, Google, Amazon, SoundCloud, and all other major podcast platforms. Learn more at cbf.net slash podcasts.